you know, throughout my life, I've had a lot of, I've had a lot of good leaders, leaders who helped me, who inspired me, who came alongside and challenged me and maybe said and did the hard thing, who encouraged me as well along the way. I've also had a lot of leaders and overseers and coaches who kind of did the opposite, who uninspired me, who kind of sucked the life out of me, who made it difficult, you feel like, with no love. Um, I remember I had one coach in, in high school basketball that basically was just known for yelling and spitting and cursing, and he would get, he'd pull us in, he'd just yell at us, he'd yell at the refs. He was just like a mean guy. I remember one day we were at a game, and he's yelling and spitting and screaming, he's cursing at like everyone on the court, and he's just so mad, and as he's yelling, his like dentures flew out of his mouth. And I was so hyped, I was like, yes, that's what you get, right? It felt so good, I don't know. Um, but you, maybe you've had a lot of leaders like that. Maybe you've had some really good leaders. I don't know if, you, if anyone in here has been like blessed with having like a Ted, a Ted Lasso kind of a leader, right? Just someone who inspires you, who comes alongside you, helps you, encourages you. I mean, that is very rare to find. A leader where you're like, I want to follow their leadership. I love how they lead. I love how they love. Maybe you've had the opposite. You know, I think what separates a good leader from a great leader is someone who truly loves and cares for the people they're leading. I think somebody who like takes interest in the people they're leading I think the leaders that I've loved and looked up to the most are leaders who genuinely loved me. You know, there are leaders who love to love, and there are leaders who love to be loved. And I think we're, we need more leaders who just love to love, like who take, who just am interested in your life. I care about you. I want to come alongside you. I mean, this was Paul's style of leadership. Paul genuinely cared for the people he was leading. Actually, I want you to kind of feel this. Like, I'm not just like titling this leaders who love. Like, this is truly the, kind of the heart of the section. Look at verse 15. We'll throw it up here. Paul says this. He says, I love you more. Am I to be loved less? We're going to kind of see like in this section, Paul's like, you know that I love you. I've loved you so much. And yet the more I loved you, you've kind of pulled away from me. I loved you more. Am I to be loved less now? Sometimes that happens when you really love people. Sometimes they can pull away. And we'll, we'll look at that. But this was basically the case for Paul. Paul's like, I love, I love my people. I love you, Corinthians. I love this church. People are calling me a false apostle. People are boasting in superficial things. I really do believe the same issues then we still have today. They're boasting in their charisma. They're boasting in their personality. They're boasting who they are. Paul, they're saying, Paul's not a good speaker. Paul, who's Paul? He hasn't been here. And they've been downplaying his life. But you see, just Paul constantly love them, woo them, call them to repentance. He's shown us what a good leader looks like. You know, I love what Paul said to the Corinthians in the first book, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. Paul says, for though you might have, listen, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. We you hear that. Though you have 10,000 instructors, you do not have many fathers. You know, I think this applies to our generation more than any generation. We are like the podcast generation. I mean, we have access to thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of quality teachings. Of like, you can get a teaching on anything, on any topic, at anywhere, at any point, probably within 30 seconds, a phenomenal teaching on, you name the topic. And I think in the church, what happens is we grow in information, but we're not growing in formation. Like we grow in knowledge, but it's not changing us. We're taking in all this information, but is it shaping our lives? Is it making us more like Jesus? Is someone there to walk us through the hard parts of life and to call us out when we're in sin to say, I love you. I'm not going to let you get away with this. Here's what I do think we have. We have 10,000 instructors, but not many fathers. I, I don't want to claim, I cannot claim to be a father in the faith. I would love to be inspired to be a father in the faith. I want to raise up men and women who want to be fathers and mothers in the faith. I think that's a beautiful thing. 
Like we need more fathers and mothers in the faith. That is Titus chapter one and Titus chapter two, where we need more fathers and mothers in the faith, not just a teacher. It's one thing to say, I just want to teach. No, we have enough. We need more spiritual fathers and mothers. Amen? And this is Paul's heart. Paul's like, I'm not just here to teach and run. I'm not here just to teach, get paid, and leave. That's what these guys are doing. But I'm going to say the hard thing. I'm going to walk you through the hard moments. I care enough to tell you about your sin, even when you don't want to hear it. Even when you say, no, no, Paul, you must be wrong. Paul's like, no, I care so much. I'm going to tell you when when you're in sin, I'm going to call you out of that sin. I'm going to call you to repentance. And that's what we see here. Paul shows us what it looks like to just love your people and to love them through thick and thin. So as we walk through this text, we're going to see kind of five main points or thoughts here. We're going to see love reassures, love gives, love builds, love mourns, and love confronts. This is what Paul is doing in in these verses. Paul's going to confront them, build them up, mourn over their sin. You're going to kind of see a lot of, of just this fatherly heart of Paul Uh, seen in this section of scripture. It's powerful. So here's the thing. Again, whether you're a parent or you will be a parent, whether you're a leader or will be a leader, or whether you're striving to be like that, Paul shows us what it's like. Like, I'm going to do the hard thing. I'm going to say the hard thing. I'm also going to encourage you along the way. So let's read this. Let's look at verse 11. For leaders who love number one, we're going to see love reassures. Verse 11, Paul does this in a very sarcastic way, just like a parent would. All right, verse 11. Paul writes, I have been a fool. Remember the context, this fool's discourse. I've been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me uh, for this wrong. All right, let me kind of bring it back, give you the big context. Love reassures, you're like, I don't feel like he's very reassuring. Paul is using really sarcasm. This passage is dripping with sarcasm. By the way, that's just an encouragement. For all you sarcastic people, you're in good company with Paul. Um, I don't know what my point is with that, but it's true. Paul, throughout Corinthians, has been sarcastic in many ways. He goes, he calls them these super apostles. These people who are coming in and like really fleecing the flock, taking advantage of them, taking money from them, not caring for them, not loving them. Paul, here's how he reassures them. Again, we'll throw it up here. It's verse 13. He says, in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Here's the issue. Actually, this really offended them. He goes, how were you less favored? You weren't less favored. You're treated, you're treated actually better. Here's how. They were frustrated at Paul because Paul went in, preached to them, loved them, taught them, and he didn't collect money from them. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but that was a part of the culture of their day. Like they wanted to pay the teachers, philosophers, the Greek, they're at that Greco-Roman world. This is Corinth. You know, they were known for traveling preachers and what you would do, part of their like culture was like, we're going to pay you. Paul's like, you're not going to pay me. I'm not going to take your money. That really offended them. That's not an issue we have today, but it's like, take our money. He's like, I'm not. Like, how dare you? That really frustrated them. And Paul is saying, hey, in what way did we treat you less? He goes, look again, verse 13, he says, uh, did we not, we, we just didn't burden you. And he's sarcastic, forgive me of this wrong. I, I want you to see this because he goes, we didn't, we didn't take from you. So we love you so much, our heart wasn't to come in and take from you. Our heart was not to do that. Don't feel like we love you less because we didn't take money from you. In fact, that shows we love you more. Paul is trying to show them, he's trying to reassure them and remind them. He goes, look at the mighty works that were done for you. I mean, you look at verse 12, he goes, look at these mighty works and these mighty deeds. Don't forget that when I came in, I came in power. Paul in 1 Corinthians said, we not come in with the wisdom of words, but in demonstration and power of the Spirit. He goes, you know signs and wonders were done among you. You know I'm a true apostle. I mean, one of the signs of being a true apostle was you saw the risen Jesus. 
Jesus himself commissioned you and said, go, that happened to Paul, and that when he was commissioned you and sent you, signs and wonders were do, done through that person. I mean, I'm not going to get into it, but you can read all about like what's, a, what's an apostle versus what's a fake apostle. Paul's basically getting into this argument that I'm a true apostle, you know this. And he's trying to reassure them. He's trying to remind them of his love. And here's why I'm bringing this up. Because they are substituting a true apostle for false apostles. They're, tr- they're really substituting really kind of like this excitement, this, this raw energy from these preachers for sound teaching. Here's how I wrote it. We substitute sound teaching for relevant teaching all the time. We substitute the power of God for the power of man. The same issues the Corinthians had, I really do believe, we today still have the same issues. We will substitute sound teaching for relevant teaching a lot. We will substitute the power of man instead of the power of God. The Corinthians were falling into this trap of saying, but Paul, you're not as, you're not as winsome as these guys. You come in with humility and brokenness. Remember Paul, he's boasting his weakness. He's boasting in, in, in his sufferings. It's like frustrating them. But Paul, these are really winsome guys. And here's the issue that we see so often in the church. Again, we will substitute the truth of God for maybe an experience, a moment, a feeling, something tweetable. We will substitute the power of God for the power of man. Paul's like, no, no, don't do that. He goes, you know how much we love you, how much we care for you. I love what John MacArthur said just about this concept or idea. He says, methods and trends come and go, and today's sensational new programs will be tomorrow's failed experiments. But the principles of godly truth and virtue that characterize an effective minister are timeless. Power and effectiveness in the ministry come from a heart that is right before God and passionately concerned about his plan and about his people. He's like, this is what it's about. These, these methods will come and go. These teachers will come and go. We need people of character. People are concerned for the things of God. Here's what Paul is doing. He goes, don't forget who I am to you. He's trying to reassure them, we don't love you any less because we can take money for you. Actually, that should show you we love you more. We weren't trying to burden you. Forgive me of this wrong. He's being like sarcastic in this area. Again, like a, a good parent would be sometimes. Um, but we just see this Paul. He's like reassuring them in this way. But not only that, like I want to keep going with the text. Love doesn't just reassure, but love does this. Love gives. And Paul says this very clearly in verse 14. Read verse 14 with me. Love gives. Verse 14, Paul writes, Here, for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. Let's just stop there. What a great phrase that defines ministry, the pursuit of people, and the pursuit of God. He goes, we don't desire what's yours, we desire you. You know, there are some people that just want something from us. There are leaders that just wanted something from the Corinthians. Paul's like, I don't want anything from you, I just want you. I mean, what a beautiful heart. It's like, I don't care what you can give me or do for me. I just want you. I want you with God. I want you with walking with God. There's nothing you could give me. I just want you. I mean, we've seen really just the heart of Jesus even being displayed in this. Does Jesus want something from us or does he just want us? Paul's like, I did not seek anything from you. I just want, I just want you. Keep going. So love gives. He says in verse 15, very clearly, we'll keep reading. Uh, Verse 14, again, actually, he says, For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. He actually expresses this in a very unique way. So he's like, I don't want anything from you, I just want you. And then he gives this verse. He goes, hey, children, they're not expected to give. It's parents who are expected to give to their children. Now, if you are a child and you're here with your parent, or you're going to see your parents later, this might be a great verse to memorize, and you can show to your parents later, right? Like, hey, Children are not here to necessarily give to the parents. Paul's not, again, this is not like a verse we're trying to use to like, hey, so where's my money, mom and dad? Like, don't you do that. But the idea of this is saying, hey, you look at, look at just parenting. Parents don't go around with their kids and say, hey, kids, give me money. Like, I need money to help. 
He's saying, actually, on the other hand, no, no. Parents are here to give to their kids. Paul goes, don't you know my heart for you? I don't want anything from you. I just want you. My heart is the heart of a parent here. I don't want to get, take something from you. I'm only here to give. Listen, love gives. And we know this. We've talked about this before, but where there is love, there is giving. If you love someone, you will give to that person. If you love someone or something, generosity will naturally flow from your life. I love you so much, I'm just going to give. Like generosity will flow easily out of your fingers to the person you love. Because I love you, it's just going to flow out of me. I can't help but give. I don't want anything from you. And he pulls up this principle. So again, I think it's just funny because mom and dad, if you're watching, what you, yeah, never mind. Um, but I just love that. He's like, this is my heart. My heart is to give in this moment. Keep going, actually. Look at verse 15. That was just verse 14. Verse 15, he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? He's, I will mostly, gla- I will mostly gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Think about this. This is what ministry is. I mean, this is what it looks like. He said, I'm willing to spend to give it all and be spent. I'm going to give, I'm going to be tired in the process, but this is what it looks like. He goes, I care so much about your soul, who you are, what kind of person you become, your identity, where you end up, your future, your heaven, like heaven and hell. Like I care so much about your soul. I'm willing to spend and be spent. Now, let me just say this. There's a balance to this. I think sometimes in ministry or just in life, you want to serve, you want to give, you want to do. Sometimes we obviously, we just need to sit at the feet of Jesus. There's this balance of like, I, can't, I have nothing to give unless I receive from Jesus. Like I need to sit down at the feet of Jesus, take it in, soak it in, spend time with him, be, be refreshed, be refueled so that I can give. Paul is saying this though, but he goes, this is what it looks like. I want to spend and be spent for your soul. This is what, again, what it looks like to follow Jesus. I want to say this. I think we live in a generation where there's a lot of apathy concerning the things of God. I think apathy keeps us from the call of God probably more than anything. I think our generation, I think what we see a lot of times is, tell me what bare minimum is, and I'll just get that done. And that is not the heart of God. That's not the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus is saying, hey, if someone says go one mile, go with them an extra mile. Like the heart is saying, I want to spend and be spent. It's not how can I do bare minimum just to get by, but like I want people to see that I really believe this. I'm really all into this. I care so much about your soul, your soul. I care so much about who you are, what you become. I'm willing to give it for you. And listen, I, I really don't want, I think, again, apathy and just kind of for us in our generation, maybe just laziness can keep us away from just what God has for us in our lives. Like, do not, do not become so apathetic that you forget the call of God in your life, what God is calling you and I to. He goes, I care so much, but I want to spend it and be spent. Paul just constantly uh, outlining this idea of just what love does. Love gives. Love gives. And Paul said this statement that we just read earlier in verse 15. He says, uh, this last phrase, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? Paul's like, the more I love you, the more it seems like you pull away. Again, parents might understand this or just leaders in any way. People who you, like, you love, you care for, the more you pursue them, the more you're like, can we get lunch? Can we talk? I see this area in your life. I care about you. I want to I speak into it. Uh, if you've ever noticed, I think the more you try to love people, a lot of times they can pull away. And Paul's seen this with the Corinthians. He's like, I just care for you. I want to see you thriving in your walk with God. You know, I love how Paul, remember, he just defined leadership. He goes, we're not here to lord over you, but we're a fellow worker of your joy. I think that is the best definition of leadership. Hey, I'm not here to lord over anyone. I'm just here to be a fellow worker of your joy of your salvation. I want to come alongside you. I want to help you. Paul is showing the Corinthians, again, what it looks like to love. This love that pursues, this love that gives it all, this love that is spent and will always, will continue to be spent. Paul's like, this is what I have for you. Now, here's what the issue, though. The issue was there's a lot of suspicion around Paul. Paul's probably tricking us. 
Paul's not receiving money, but he's taking money for Jerusalem. He wants to give an offering to Jerusalem. Maybe that money's for him. And so there's a lot of suspicion around Paul, and this is what he gets into in verse 16. So let's read verse 16 through 19 under Love Gives. Here's what he goes on to say about the suspicion. Verse 16, Paul says, But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Verse 19, have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? Basically, around Paul, there's a suspicion. Paul, we don't believe you. There's no way you're not asking for money here. I think, Paul, the money that you're collecting for Jerusalem is actually for you. And there's basically, they use this term, like, Paul's like, you call me crafty. You call me deceitful. Because you know Titus, you know the brother that we sent to you, you know this is not our heart. It's crazy. I think one thing that can keep there from being trust and unity is like a spirit of suspicion. You know, when you think about the definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, love what believes all things, hopes all things. It's crazy how sometimes we might meet people, maybe you've been hurt before in the past at a church, maybe you've been hurt by someone in your life, and the next person you interact with, you have like suspicion towards them. Do they really care for me? Do they really have good motives for me? Like, do they really care? Do they just want something from me? What do they want from me? You know, it's crazy. Like, no one likes to be judged. No one, like, you know, we are, everyone knows, like, one verse, judge not lest you be judged. Like, everyone knows that, that idea and that concept. But think about it. We do this all the time. Someone's like, hey, I just want to get to know you. Hey, I care for you. Tell me what's going on in your life. How can I pray for you? You're like, well, what do you want? There's a spirit of suspicion around Paul. I love what this one author said, Kevin DeYoung, said about the spirit of suspicion. Listen to this. He says, it is better to go through life getting hurt once in a while and being disappointed by others once in a while than living a life of suspicion. Always putting the worst possible construct on people's motives. Always interpreting people's actions in the worst possible light. Always listening for the worst theology in your friends. Always imagining your friendships are less than they seem. Always fearing that your friends may not be your friend. So in the spirit of Christ, bear with one another and not cultivate this kind of suspicion. This is, good. This is a good word. See, this can keep there from being unity, love, trust. Paul's like, really? You know me. You've seen me. You see how I've walked with you for years now. And there's a spirit of suspicion around Paul. Maybe he doesn't really care. Paul's like, all I've tried to do is give. I've only wanted to give. I've only wanted to spend and be spent. I, I've loved you more. You've pulled away. And again, listen, I think this is, so, this is so worth it. Christians, as we follow Jesus, as we love our friends, as we love our family, as we love our coworkers, as we love people in our lives, there will be misunderstanding. There'll be a spirit of suspicion. They'll go, what do you want? And you go, I have no motive other than for you to know Jesus and be with Jesus. I want you to know him, love him, walk with him. Obviously, people will hurt you along the way. People will have ill motives around the way. But I love what he said. He goes, don't let that stop you. Don't let that cultivate a spirit of suspicion. Bear with one another. Believe all things. Hope all things. There, this is what love looks like. Amen. Paul is showing us really what enduring love looks like. Love builds. It builds. And I think verse 19, the end of verse 19, it gets its own point. Um, love builds. Love builds. Then in verse 19, here's how he says it. He says, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Just hear that last phrase. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. He goes, beloved, I just want to build you up. Love builds. You know, we see so often, we live in a moment, we live in a culture where we love to tear down. Tear down everything and everyone, get rid of them, cancel them. Love builds. He's like, you know, you know how much I love you. I only want to build you up. I mean, you think about this is the, this is the goal of the church. 
Jesus talks about this idea. He says, I will what? I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This church, the church, the bride of Christ, when, when groups of believers are gathered together, pursuing Jesus, worshiping Jesus, following Jesus together, he goes, this is an unstoppable force. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. I will build my church. Paul's like, I get to join Jesus in building the church. I just want to build you up. Love builds. I think hate just tears down constantly. Love builds. Now to build, maybe there's like a broken wall that needs us to start all over and you tear down so you can build up fresh again. That might happen in our lives. There might be some things that God's like, let me tear this down so I can build fresh. There's some beliefs or maybe some things in your life. I need to tear this down so I can build fresh in you. But love will build. I think this is like the point of the church. What does Ephesians 4 say? Listen, Ephesians 4 chapter 12, or Ephesians 4 chapter 4 verse 12, it says this, and he, Jesus, gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. I mean, the whole point of this is to equip you guys, the saints, for the work of the ministry, for what? For building up the body of Christ. The ministry of reconciling the world to God and building up the body of Christ. And he goes, we want it to be built up in love. I mean, this is why we exist. This is the point of this. This is so important. This word for, for build, by the way, it's the same Greek word for exhortation. When he says, we just want to build you up, beloved. He's saying, we just want to encourage you. We just want to speak life into you. We just want to, we just want to grow you. I, I love this. If you've ever had people just speak life into you, there's nothing like it. When people pull you aside and just want to give you that encouraging word, here's what I see God doing in you. They call you up. They text you. They build you up. I, I think sometimes the best for my life is just people who can a challenge, call out, and speak life. It's they build you in a more of a complete way. I don't want to say things, flattery, kind things over you for the sake of what? building your pride and ego. No, no, I'm going to say the hard thing, but I'm also going to build you up along the way. That is such a beautiful take. Paul's like, we just want to build you up. This is why the church exists, to be built up more to the image of Christ growing together. You know, this is our hope, is how do we build into each other? You know, you, you, you and I, we can't build anything if we're not present. You know, I want to bring this up. The, the thought is simple. Uh, you, the way to build up is by showing up. If you and I want to build each other up, we got to be present like not just present here, but like present mentally, like be all in. Like I'm here, I'm with you, I care about you. I'm not just going through the motions like we sang to this today. Like I'm sorry, God, for just singing these songs, for just going through these motions. This idea of like, I want to truly be present. Like I want to look around this room and say, God, who needs you? Who, who can I pull aside and encourage and love on and pray for and invite to lunch? Who can I bless financially? Like God, what is it you're doing? This is the idea of building up. It's like, I want to walk through life with, with a group of believers all following Jesus, confessing sin, acknowledging the shortcomings, encouraging each other. This is so different than what we see so often in the church today. It's like, we're not here just to play games. We want to pursue Jesus together. We want to see the kingdom of God come to earth as it is in heaven. Amen? And that's going to take building. Either we're building or we're tearing down. There's no neutral. You're either building up the kingdom or you're tearing it down. Well, this idea of being present is so important. I, I, John actually brought this up in 2 John. 2 John verse 12. It's only one chapter. 2 John verse 12. John writes, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. You know, there's nothing like, like yes, it's, it's sweet to write a letter to someone. But there's nothing like sitting with them face to face. And I think when it comes to how do we build, like we got to be present. Like be present when it comes to community groups, outreach. Like, this is not just an, an argument for like be at church more, but this is an argument for being community, for being around other believers. You know, you think about what we walk through in a week. Like, we have like an hour and a half on a Sunday to gather. 
And that, that's not enough. Like we're either being formed by the scriptures, Jesus, community, the spirit, worship, or we're being formed by this world. There's a book I read this summer. It's called um, What If Jesus Was Serious? And it's about the Sermon on the Mount. And it's got, the author's name is Sky uh, Jatani, I believe. Sky Jatani. And in his book, he had this graph that I thought was so powerful. We'll put the graph up here. He calls it uh, the scale formation, or formation scale. I'm not sure. It's not in front of me. Uh, the formation scale. And I thought this is so true. You know, what do we get? Most believers attend, attend church probably twice a month. I mean, that is the common data and stat- statistic on that. So if most of America gathers twice a month, let's just say two to three hours, maybe an hour and a half each, so three hours, we'll even give it more. Three hours versus what? 150,000 different advertisements things are popping into our screen, our lives. The idea is this, something is shaping you, something is forming you. Like all of us are being shaped and formed by something or someone. We got to give more time for the things of God. We got to give more time when it comes to the gathering of believers. This might not, this might be organized in a formal way by the church. It might not be organized in a formal way by the church. It might be you taking the initiative to say, no, it's so worth us gathering meeting up, loving each other. What is forming you? What is shaping you? See, for us to build, we have to be together. We have to be face-to-face like John writes. That is the hope. Love builds. Amen? Love builds. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes effort. But love will build. Love builds. Number four is this. He goes on to say, love mourns. Look at verse 20. You see this, again, this pastoral father heart of Paul. He's mourning over their sin. Verse 20, Paul writes, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual morality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Love mourns. Paul's like, I love you guys. And Paul, remember, this is his third visit. Paul's been there for a year and a half the first time. He visited them, had a very hard, hard visit that second time. His third visit, he's like, listen, I'm coming to you guys, and, and I fear you're not as I wish. I'm not as you wish. I fear that when I come around you guys, there's going to be a lot of social sins, quarreling, dissensions, fighting. I feel there's going to be a lot of sexual sins among you, unrepentant sins, sins you're giving your life over to. And I mourn. I want to bring this up because I think this is so important. I, I had such a vision or image of God for so many years growing up where when I sinned, God was just angry. God was just really angry at me. Like, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't pray. I couldn't talk to him. I couldn't seek him. I couldn't apologize. Like, there's a, this gap between me and God, and in some ways, that's what sin does, right? Sin just creates a division between us and God. It just throws things out of order. It throws our relationship off. It just throws, throws things off. And, and it, for so long, though, I felt like God was just angry at me. I realized that the more the posture of the heart of God when I sin, it's not anger. It's, it's mourning. It's grieving. You know, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, Paul writes it this way. Paul writes, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you're sealed for the day of redemption. You know, it's more of, it's more of grieving. You know, even now I see this more and more, my son who's six, my daughter who's two, when I see them make a wrong choice or be selfish or hit or do something, I'm not like, Ugh! sometimes, maybe sometimes, but more the, more the heart is like, come on, I love you. I know you can make like a better choice. I, I just think there's a grief, there's a mourning there. Paul's like, I'm mourning that when I come to you, when I, when I see you, that there's going to be things that are off in your life, unrepentant sin. You see, mourning was connected to sin that was not repented. Actually, again, we'll put the phrase up here. Look how he says it. He says, I fear I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented, have not repented. You see, the, the issue, listen, we're going to sin. Like I, 
no pastor, no leader has this thought that their, their, their church is going to be sinless. Of course it's going to be sin, but the issue is do we repent when we sin? Are we, are we truly broken by it? Let's talk about repentance for a second. I think repentance obviously gets a bad rap, like even in my mind. Like I grew up in Southern California where you see like some weirdos on the street on the side like, repent! Like, and you see like them like, you're going to go to hell if you don't repent. And you're like, oh my gosh, like I'm scared. This word repent, I think such a, gets such a bad rap sometimes. I, I think sometimes we just maybe we view it and we're like, oh, that's just for some crazy extreme person. Repent is such a beautiful word. Repent is this idea of turn back to what you're made for, turn back to who you're designed for, turn back to what, we're, what this is all about. Repent means like a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of will. It's, it's a change of everything. You know, repentance is the first word we see basically in everyone's ministry. John the Baptist's first word is repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus' first word after he's baptized and the Holy Spirit comes upon him, we'll throw this verse up here, is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We see this in the book of Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit falls upon Peter. Peter's like first basic word of like after the summary of who Jesus is and what he's done is repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Paul, given this brilliant speech of who Jesus was in Acts 17, says, but now God commands all men everywhere to repent. I think God wants us to repent. And that's okay. That's beautiful. It's based on you're serving something else instead of the living and true God. Like you think this will give you meaning, identity, purpose, value. In reality, you're created by me and for me. Like repent, come back to God. Like here is the question. Is anything in your life off limits to God? Is something in your life just completely off limits? God, you can have everything, but don't touch my money. God, you can have everything, but don't talk about my identity. God, you can have everything, but I, I don't want to move out with my girlfriend. No. Like, is everything, is everything truly given over to God? See, God knows if there's something that's taking us, if one thing, if one thing, he's no longer God in your life. He's not God in your life. He's secondary. God does not want to be secondary. This idea of repentance is not just for non-believers who don't believe in you. It's for Christians. Repent. Where has God become second in your life? You know, repentance is, is this like, idea that you see a one-time genuine act of like, repent and believe on Jesus. I love that in the book of Acts. It's so simple. Repent and believe on Jesus and you will be saved. Repent and believe and you will be saved. But it's also this ongoing posture our heart takes as followers of Jesus. There's constant repentance. It's not like, oh, those bad people need to repent. Like, I have things I repent from all the time. Sins of commission, sins of omission, things I do that I don't want to do, things that I don't do that I probably should be doing. And the idea is like we're constantly in that, that posture of like repentance. And that's just a beautiful thing saying, God, like I need to make a course correction. I'm going to stray in my life. I'm getting sidetracked. You're not the center. You're not the focus. You're not the aim. And I want you to be the aim. God, nothing's off limits to you. When I say I give you all of my life, I give you all of my life. God, say the hard thing. Probe, poke, do the hard thing. God is not God if God cannot challenge us. Is God, do you let God challenge you? Do I let God challenge me? I mean, this is the thing I think we all struggle with. Every worldview, every person has something they have to repent of. It's not like God calls one people group to repentance. God calls everyone to repentance. That's what Paul says. All men everywhere to repent. I am so thankful for this. Again, it's an equal like, opportunity of repentance for all of us. It's not just like, oh, those people need to repent. Like, no, there are a lot of Christians that need to repent of their self-righteousness, of their lack of love towards people, of maybe their view of someone. Like everyone everywhere is called to repentance. And it's such a beautiful thing. It means turn from and turn to. You think sometimes we can make repentance just sound like this idea of just turn to God, turn to God. And it's true. But it means I'm, tr I'm turning from this, whatever that, this is. This sin that is taking over my life, this behavior, this lifestyle, this practice, this identity, this thing. I, God, I'm repenting from this and turning to you. I'm actually saying your view, what you say about me matters more. How, how you view me matters more than how I view this topic or issue. 
God, what you say goes. The idea is, is God have every area of your life open to him. You're like, God, you can have everything, but don't you dare question me in this. I know I'm right. Maybe you're not right. Maybe I'm not right. Like, do we get that God has a right to challenge everything and anything? And that's so beautiful because we're made by him and for him. And he goes, hey, when you, when you repent, you will find peace. You'll find love. You'll find joy. It'll be difficult. You have to give up the old and follow, follow me. Notice what Paul calls them to repentance of. There are social sins and sexual sins. There's both. Again, we'll throw this verse up so you can kind of see it in a more complete way. Uh, verse 20, perhaps he says there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Some of you right now, they need to repent of your social sins. Gossip, disorder, slander. And sometimes what we can do is, oh, those are the bad sins. My sins aren't as bad. No. He, he calls these social sins to repentance. Then verse 21, he calls it sexual sins. Impurity, sexual morality, sensuality, for that they have practiced. That they're, they're practicing, meaning it's their lifestyle. It's, 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 it's not like a one-time God forget. It's like, no, this is what they're doing. This idea of even these sexual sins, the Bible, the Greek language is so much more vast than our language. Uh, this idea for sensuality and for sexual morality, it's just this word pornea. Pornea is like this big, this simple word that basically describes every sort of sexual sin. Meaning, God calls heterosexual sin to repentance. Lust in your heart. Sex outside of marriage. God calls heterosexual sin. God calls every form of sin. And this is the thing I think the world gets stuck on. I think we kind of go, God only calls out these people. God calls all of us everywhere to repent. My thing, I really want us to get this. God's like, I love you so much. I'm going to say the hard thing. I'm going to do the hard thing. You're made by me and for me. And this applies to everyone and anyone. And once you begin to think, no, no, your interpretation must be wrong. My God would never do that. Why not? Why can't God challenge you? Why can't God call you out of darkness into light? Why, why can't God define how we define marriage or gender? Why can't God do that? Of course he can you see, when you begin to say, no, no, my God agrees with me on everything, then you're God. Okay, it's not about your God agreeing with you on everything. It's saying, God, what do you say? I'm willing to do the, the, I'm willing to do the work. I want to know your heart, God. Because I actually do believe now that your plans are better than my plans, that your ways are better than my ways, and I'm willing to submit my ways over to you. This is, this is the heart of repentance. It's Jesus, I'm willing to submit this up over to you. Listen, Paul is like, I'm mourning over your unrepentant sin. I want there to be repentance. And some of you still have not repented. And when I come to you, I really pray and hope there's repentance. Let me just read a couple of last things. We studied this earlier this year in the book of Revelation, but Jesus calls five of the seven churches to repentance. We'll put the verses up here really quick. Remember, Jesus says this. He says, remember from where you have fallen and repent. The second church says, therefore repent. The third church, I gave her time to repent. Fourth church, repent. Fifth church, therefore be zealous and repent. Again, I think the heart of God is that I want you to repent. Like, just give it up. Why are you clinging to this? Cling to me. My plan is so much better. My ways are so much better. There's actually a promise to those who repent. Look at, listen to this promise. It's so beautiful. Isaiah 55. It says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. He will abundantly pardon. He's like, forsake your way, your thoughts, everyone. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners to repentance. You know who that is? That's me. That's all of us. He doesn't call one person or one people group. He calls all of us to repentance. Sadly, the, the righteous, the self-righteous don't realize they have sin. And I think we can fall into that category in, in a religious way and in an irreligious way. Well, I don't have sin. Those Christian people do. Well, I don't have sin. Those non-Christian people do. No, he calls all of us to repentance. 
you know, it's the person who says, you know what, God, there's sin in my life. I repent. I turn to you. I want to give up my plan, my way for your way. I trust you. Paul's basically saying, hey, love mourns. It grieves over sin. And then lastly, verse 1 through 4, he's like, love confronts. So let's read verse 1 through 4. Paul continues his thought because it's together. I don't want to just like leave it there. Chapter 13, verse 1, he says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. There will be judgment. You'll be kicked out of the church. Verse three, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he, Jesus, was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Paul's like, there's this rumor that I am weak. There's this rumor that I can be really bold in my letters, but really weak to you face to face. And he goes, no, no, I want to be clear. When I come to you, he goes, I'm, I'm going to make sure things are right. Actually, we'll kind of put it up again, just so you can see it this way. I warned those who sinned that if I come again, I will not spare them. Meaning, you might think I'm pretty serious with my letter, but not face-to-face. No, no. I'm letting you know that there's still sin that's not repented of. I'm going to confront it. Here's the thing. Love confronts. Love is willing to say the hard thing, do the hard thing. Say, I love you so much. I care for you so much. You need to surrender this. Give this over to God. You need to follow him. This is your God. This is taking the place of God in your life, and you need to repent of that. Love will confront. And this is what Paul is doing. He goes, you think I come in weakness? Hey, don't forget, Christ died in weakness, but was raised in power. We come in weakness, but we'll come with power as well. Just a really interesting thought. Love is willing to confront. I love what St. Augustine said. He says, better it is to love even with the accompaniment of severity than to mislead by excess of lenience. I want to hear that again. Better is to love even with the accompaniment of severity than to mislead by the excess of lenience. Sometimes the worst thing we can do is not say something. Not say, I love you so much. Don't you realize God loves you? He calls you to repentance. Don't you see this? John MacArthur put it this way. He says, the biggest problem faced in the church is not cultural insensitivity, but insensitivity to sin. I so agree. Let's hear that again. The biggest problem in the church is not cultural insensitivity, but insensitivity to sin. Do we realize that sin inhibits us from growth? That repentance is that first mark of sanctification, of being made new. And this, we got to see how important this is. I, I, I wrote it this way because I've been kind of praying through this. And I had a conversation with someone this week that really sparked my, my thoughts on this. But by not confronting sin, the church loses its authority in the world. I want us to really hear this. I was having a conversation in lunch with someone, and the details don't matter too much, but the idea was someone who committed a, a, just a lifestyle of sin, and it's exposed, and it's confronted, and then within a short period of time, is already leading another church again. And my art conversation with the person was, listen, we lose our authority in the world. I think we lose our moral authority when we, we don't call out sin amongst us. We want to call out sin in the world, but we won't say this is wrong, this is sinful, this needs to stop. And I think so often we see people deconstruct their faith and leave their faith. They go, look at these Christians. They're just playing games. They call other people to repentance, but not themselves. And there's a side of it where, like, we cannot lose that weight or that authority. And for us, the judgment, it says in the Bible, it says judgment begins where? In the house of God, with us. See, it's one of those things where, like, for us to have weight and authority in this world, it's going to take holiness, being set apart, being different. When there's sin, we call it to repentance. When there's unrepentant sin, what Paul does, hey, I'm going to have to, I'm going to bring basically judgment when I come. 
You, there has to be repentance. My thing is that love will confront, love will say the hard thing, do the hard thing. For us to, I believe, have kind of weight and authority again in this world, we have to look different. We have to live different. And we can't just kind of overlook our sin and be like, well, that sin's bad. This sin's not as bad. We have to call it what it is. There's grace. There's restoration. Repent. The whole idea of this too is there's repentance. There is restoration. That's not like shame on you. You're going to be ostracized forever. It's like, but when you repent, you're brought back into community. The problem was they weren't repenting. So there's an idea that, listen, God's ultimate heart in this is restoration, that we walk with him, that we know him. God wants us to walk with him and know him and love him. God doesn't want to kick out or send out. I love what it says in Matthew 25. Jesus like, don't you know that hell was created for Satan and his angels? It wasn't intended for us. But the idea is, but unrepentant sin will be judged. And there has to be sin that's repented of. And Paul is basically, I'm going to confront you in this. I'm going to speak into this. By not confronting sin, the church loses its authority in the world. Paul says it this way. In verse 4, he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. We also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. You think we're going to go light on this? We can't go light on this anymore. We're losing our weight and our authority in the world. We're going to come in weakness, but also with the power of God to you. Listen, here's all I'm trying to get at, church. Let us repent, myself included. Jesus, there's things that have taken your place in my life. You've been second. My identity, my worth doesn't come from you. It comes from my identity on whatever. It comes from my value, my beliefs. And you know what? Repentance means I have to repent of my thoughts, my belief system. I repent of my actions. I repent of all, God, my will, it's all yours. I'm surrendering over to you. Listen, today we are taking communion as a way for us to do that. It's almost like that public expression of saying, yes, Jesus, by the shedding of blood, there's forgiveness of sins. And I repent of my sins. I'm reminded of that, that at one time I repented once and for all and believed on you, but I still daily repent and turn to you. That Jesus, your body was broken for me. Your body was broken, ripped apart, so that I could be part of the body of Christ. Your body went through beating, so Jesus, because I was bought at a price. And I want to glorify you now with my body and with, your, with my spirit, which are yours. See, th- this is a moment for us, and this is what communion reminds us of. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul does say that. He goes, you and I were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are his. Your body is not yours. That's God's. Your spirit is not yours. That's God's. God's like, I bought you at a price. I love you. I paid a huge price for you, my son Jesus, the death of the cross, that by his stripes you are healed. And my blood is shed for your forgiveness of sins. And when we take communion, we're reminded that, thank you, God. Thank you, God, that your body was beaten and bruised and really ripped apart so I could be bought, so I could be brought into the body of Christ. That your blood was shed so I could have forgiveness of sins. That's why we take communion. I know it might seem trivial at times with this little cracker and this little juice. Like, what are we doing here? But this is a way for us to slow down and say, God, thank you. God, thank you. We celebrate who you are, what you've done today, God. I repent again. I, I don't just repent one time to believe on you. I repent daily, often. It's, it's a breath of fresh air it's to be right with you. I love this idea. Let me just actually share this because this was life-changing for me. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That word confess in the Greek, homologeo, it just simply means to agree with God. Please hear me on this. Because I was talking this with even my son. It's like, wait, why do I have to confess my sins if I'm already forgiven? If I'm forgiven, why do I have to confess? Confess just means to agree with God. Basically, you're saying, God, I agree with you. You say this about my sin, I agree with you. You know, what happens if, if you offend or hurt someone you love, your spouse or a best friend, and you don't say, I agree with you, what I did was terrible, there's still going to be that divide there. You know, confession to my spouse is basically saying, you are right. Honey. Like, more often than not, that's what it said. It's like, you're right. You're right. And I agree with you. I agree with you. If your person you love doesn't do that, you just feel like there's like this weird division between us. Like, sure, are you forgiven? Yeah. Am I still married to my wife? Yeah. But do I want intimacy? I have to confess. Do you get the idea? If you want intimacy with God, there has to be confession. 
if you confess your sins, if you agree with God about your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Do you see the beauty of that? Do you agree with God? So like, no, I don't agree with God. No, I will not agree with God. This is not a sin. Repent. Either God is God or you're God. We make terrible gods. We'll be miserable. We'll be selfish. We'll, we'll be frustrated, depressed. We make terrible gods. We agree with God. What, what does God say about this? God, I agree with you. I swear this over to you. I confess my sins. Listen, we're going to pass out communion. You already have communion, actually. And here's what I want to remind you of. If you do not believe in Jesus, there is no need to take this. Why remember something you don't even believe in? Why take something you don't even believe in? So don't take it. No worries. But even in this moment, you say, Jesus, I believe you died for my sins. I believe your body was broken. I believe your blood was shed for my forgiveness of sins. Take it. Eat, drink, remember, confess. And I love this. It says before Jesus really had a Passover that night, it says he gave thanks. Before he broke the bread, before he passed the cup, it says he gave thanks. We just give thanks to God. Thank you. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for what this represents. Thank you for how your body was broken for me, how your blood was shed for me. Thank you, God. This is a good time to repent. I want to encourage you guys as you take it, before you take it, just repent. Jesus, I turn from this sin. Be specific. These are the sins. This is the sin I am turning from. I repent. I want to turn from this and turn to you, God. I believe in you. I love you. I trust in you. And listen, we're going to take communion just to do that. We don't want to just study the word as like a Bible study. We want to give space for the Spirit to do that. I'm going to be praying. We're going to be praying that God would just move among us, that there would be repentance, that there could be a fresh work of God, which will only come with repentance. The first word in everyone's ministry is essentially repent. Jesus, John, Peter, repent, repent, repent. And I think, what is Jesus? actually, beautiful verse in Acts 3, Peter says, repent and times of refreshing will come. And I believe that's where it starts. You want times of refreshing? Repent. There will not be times of refreshing unless you repent. Repent and times of refreshing will come. 